The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going through this series called All Things New. Um, this is a, a big overview of the Bible, so typically just so you understand what we do is we go through one book of the Bible and we kind of preach through that. So uh, starting in January, we're going to start preaching through the book of Genesis, and that'll take us most of the year next year. But this year we thought we want to see God's renewing heart for us through the whole message of the Bible and see how does that strengthen us, renew us, save us, uh, make us new in Jesus through the whole Bible. And so what we've been doing up to this point is talking about, well, to understand how God renews us, we need to understand how God created us. So we looked at the early chapters of Genesis. We're going to kind of touch on Genesis for a second, and then we're going to leapfrog over into Jeremiah today, and that's where we'll spend most of our time. And then in the coming next week, we'll spend a few more chapters in Jeremiah, and then we'll get to everybody's favorite part of the Bible, Jesus. Um, <laughs> but uh, so this morning, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start out and I'm going to read our primary passage for us this morning from Jeremiah. And uh, if you have a Bible, that's Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to read the first nine verses. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, that's like here. So in the middle, over about 100 pages, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. And so I'm going to read a letter from God himself uh, to his people in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 9. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests and the prophets and all the peoples whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is after, G after King Jeconiah, uh, sorry, there's all those ones, and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had, prepared, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, son of Saphon, uh, Jamaria, son of Melchi, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, to king, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, "Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon: Build your cell, build houses, and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce." Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where, you ha where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who, you, who are among you, deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these words together and consider what does it mean to be your people scattered throughout the world on your mission, loving Jesus, I pray that as we work through them, that we would see your presence among us, that you've saved us to be your presence with you wherever we live. And I pray that we would see this 
as an expression of your heart for us in Jesus, who took on flesh, who dwelt among us, who is our brother and our king. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, this week, I don't know, do you guys do many people watching? You just like watch people. Uh, so I sat on Elm Street, and over the course of two minutes, I decided to write down all the people that I saw this week. I saw the mailman delivering, um, taking his, and this, this guy had the earbuds, and he was like power walking through everything. Um, I saw a guy wearing crystals and blasting his music, walking down right in front of me. Uh, Manchester Transport and their big car with the cones. I saw lawyers walking, so I was positioned where I could see the courthouse, kind of like right there between the courthouse and the city hall. And there were lawyers with their briefcases, or I assumed there were lawyers with briefcases. I don't carry a briefcase, briefcase on a regular basis. But they were doing that between the courthouse and the uh, city hall. I saw guys with their life possessions um, in a gigantic backpack. I saw a couple with cupcakes from Queen City Cupcakes walking by. You know what I mean? Like they got some pretty sweet cupcakes. Uh, walking by, I saw, uh, as you would expect, the ticket lady walking by, uh, giving people tickets. <laughs> An elderly man walking into the um, Bunny's convenience store there at, at the corner of Elm uh, with a Gandalf beard. I mean, the guy had a beard like down to here. You know what I mean? <laughs> just a huge beard. I saw friends, and there's um, NHTI students just walking by. Um, and it just it, it led me into thinking about the passage that we're talking about. Because what, what we want to talk about today is what does it mean to be Christians in our culture and world? And we can talk about that in like an abstract way, as though like culture is a thing. But really, our culture is our people. It's where we live. It's the people that we live around. It's the people that we look at in this room. It's the people that I watched on the side of the street as they walked by. They're doing whatever it is they're doing. It is, the culture is basically this question of who are we and where are we going? Like, we all do that in our own personal lives. Like, if you're single or married, who am I and what am I doing? You know, like, I have a job or, you know, we're going on vacation or we're trying to save up for this or that. Like, you have, like, the small micro versions of that. But as a culture... That's what we ask. Who are we and where are we going? Uh, obviously, there's loads of debates about that going on right now. But as we're talking about this in the All Things New series, we're getting to this point in the story of the Bible where we've seen one of the falls at the beginning of the Bible, right? We saw one of them um, with Adam and Eve, and then we saw a second one with uh, the flood with Noah, right? Things have gone from good, really good. God lives with us and dwells with us. And then suddenly we start thinking, you know what? I think, God, let's rewrite this blueprint here. Let's do this on our own terms. And things start going from good to bad to worse. And what we're going to do is we're going to touch on Genesis 11. We'll get back to that when we preach through the book of Genesis next year. We're going to touch on the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and then leapfrog over to what we just read in in Jeremiah because... Genesis 11 represents this big idea of what happens through the rest of the Bible. Like, you're wondering, like, why is this part of the Bible all so thick? Well, it's because of what starts in Genesis 11 is people trying to live their own terms on their own way apart from God, and then it just, like, season 20, it's like law and order. <laughs> like, it's just like infinite series of how it goes bad to worse. Like, they can't do it, they can't do it on their own, like, you guys know what I say with law and order. Like, how many seasons are there? Like, 30 seasons or something like that? Like, that's all the Old Testament is of, like, 
um, season 35 of how to screw up your life without God. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's how the Old Testament goes. So here we have yet, in the, in the midst of all that, people going from bad to worse, human beings are still image bearers of God himself. And they are still tasked with this idea of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with the image and glory of God himself. And there's this tension then that develops how do, we, how do we continue to follow God, and yet how do we continue to ruin what God has made? And there's this tension that builds all through the Old Testament. So here's what I want to say for our main point. We're going to be a little bit kind of leapfrogging around, and I hope you can appreciate a little, a little less tied to one exact passage than what we typically are. But main point for this morning is live for Jesus through faithful presence in your Babylonian exile. Live for Jesus through faithful presence in your Babylonian exile. So what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to read for us the, t- the story of the Tower of Babel, and then we're going to jump back here, but I want to make a few, few comments. I'm going to read this, and then I'll make a few comments, and then we'll get back to Jeremiah 29. So Jer- Genesis 11 is at the very beginning of the Bible, if you have one. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from, e- from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is the, the only beginning, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confused their language so that they may not understand one's, one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them through the, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore the name, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. The reason we're looking at this is because the word Babel and the word Babylon are the same word in Hebrew. So just so you kind of understand, what's the bridge here? Like, uh, Babel is just as the same word as what gets used later um, for Babylonian, for, ba- for, uh, for the Babylonian Empire, which becomes the big bad boogeyman in the rest of the Old Testament. But you have to understand what's going on here, right? In the ancient world, where did the gods live? I mean, you guys have all seen enough comic books and to know like Zeus and, and Thor and all those guys. They all live on the tops of mountains, <laughs> And so what's really happening in this story, just simply put, again, we'll visit this when we get to Genesis 11, is they're basically saying, like, we're just going to, you know what, I just don't think those gods are really got it together. Let's just take over. Let's just do this. We're going to do this on our own terms. You know, you can imagine all the bad guys in all the, um, in the Marvel superhero movies where they're kind of like, yeah, Iron Man, you're just not doing a great job at it. Let me just take your, take your place. And you're like, yeah, but you're not Tony Stark. <laughs> You know, that's basically what this is saying. You're not the Tony Stark of gods. <laughs> You're just a human. <laughs> we are just people. And yet, 
the very core of what it means here for the rest of the Bible in terms of how people think about what it means to be a society, what, it think about it, what, it thinks, what they think about what it means to be a culture, is to say, how can we exalt ourselves and live in the heavens where God lives and then basically say, aren't we so great? So just a few things to kind of note here, and then we're going to kind of move on. You know what's interesting is that we have in the West, in, in American culture especially, we had this idea that it's called the great man of history view. Like, you look at history and you find the great men of history who really made things happen, you know, FDR or, who, you know, whoever it is that did great things. And we say, those are the people that we need. We need one guy to really take over and make things happen. And you look at Genesis 11, there's no one leader mentioned. One of the great problems is that everybody's working together, pulling in one direction, trying to accomplish one thing together. Right? There's not one guy who calls a shot. It's everybody's pulling together, and God's saying, that's a good thing that now you've co-opted for a bad thing. Right? It's, you are, when, we, when we yearn to work together, we're trying to get back into that Genesis 2, Genesis 3 world where we all live and work together. But Genesis 11 tells us that often we are so, we are so flawed in a certain way that even when we're trying to pull together, we're pulling in the wrong direction. We're pulling in a direction away from God himself. You see this, I don't know if you guys have been listening to the, uh, I, had to, I had to tap out of this podcast, but uh, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, you guys, I don't know if you guys will listen to this podcast. You will notice that in the midst of all of that, that podcast, it's describing the rise of Mars Hill Church with Mark Driscoll and full disclosure, right, we're a part of Acts 29 Network. Mark Driscoll was a part of the beginning of Acts 29. He's no longer a part of that. That's not a part of our culture, but it's just a part of what we, you know, it's our history. Everybody's got, you know, that weird uncle that they don't like to talk about at Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but we, uh, it, it, that podcast captures how one guy pulling together this entire culture of one church and a group of churches, it was one church that met in 15 locations across four states at its height building an empire, and ultimately it is an example of what we find in Genesis 11. When people try to build things for their own name and their own glory, they fall very quickly because we are not made to handle and sustain the strain and the glory of being the center of attention. <laughs> so we're just going to drop on this real quick. So this is the, the, the rise of Babylon. That's what we're calling this category here. The rise of what it means for humans to try to bring society and culture into existence under their own terms, right? Are you guys tracking with me? I, I realize it's a little bit uh, high level, but I'm, I'm not trying to lose us here. So this is the world we live in, right? From Genesis 11 on, this is the world we live in. People trying to build a name for themselves, their own country, their own party, their own politics, their own company, whatever it is, trying to build a name for themselves, and it never quite goes according to plan because why people are involved, <laughs> What we're going to do here, we're going to spend most of our time then in Jeremiah 29. So if you have a Bible, they're going to, the verses are up here. Jeremiah 29. So just a note, God's people have not followed God's ways. They've continued to reject God. They've continued to find different ways to find other people to lead them that aren't God, aren't God's people. They continue to find ways around God's word. And so here we have at the very beginning of Jeremiah 29, these are the words of the letter to, that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let's just pause there. 
because what's happening here is God is still in the midst of his punishment for his people. Their punishment for not following God's ways was you got to get, get kicked out of town, right? You're out of town. You're no longer allowed in my promised land. You can't live here anymore. They get kicked out. They use, he, God uses Babylon as his punishment. And so he is still yet in the midst of that punishment sending this letter to these people that have rejected him because he still loves them. And he still has a purpose for them. You'll notice here that when it talks about <laughs> verse 4, this letter was sent by the hand of... Um, Oh, let's see. Where is it at? Um, it says here that God himself... I'm losing my place, guys. I am sorry. Though, verse 4, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent in the exile. Sorry, I lost my place for a second. Verse 4, it's, God has sent them into this. He has a purpose for them, even in the midst of their punishment. And so there is a problem that's going to develop while they're in exile. While they're not where their home is, where they're not where they're supposed to be, while they're away from God's promised land out in the, in the nations, they still have a purpose and there's a tension, right? You're not home, you're, where, you're not where you belong, but you have a purpose where, you, where I've sent you. So we're going to skip over verses 4 to 7. We're going to come back to those in a second. But that tension here we pick up in verse 8 and 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now, I don't exactly know what, who these people are. It's a little confusing to me. I don't know when you read this. Are these Israel's prophets or are these Babylon's prophets that they've allowed to come into their church services and talk to their people? Who is it? It's not really clear, and it kind of doesn't matter because ultimately, at the end of the day, there are people who are saying, okay, if you're going to be God's people here in Babylon, here's what you do. Da, 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 da. And God's basically saying, no, that's not my game plan, bro. That's not the way I designed this to happen. That's not the people that, that's not the way I want my people to live in Babylon. I want my people to live as exiles. Right? This is a major metaphor all through, through the Bible. So, 1 Timothy 2.11 calls us sojourners and exiles where we live. James 1.1 says that we are the dispersion, the, the diaspora of God's people among the nations. Paul says in Ephesians 2.19, right, we are citizens and saints and members of the household of God, and yet we live where we live. So it's a regular image of you're in a different place, there's a tension, you're a different place, you're my people. You belong to me. Follow, follow me and my character. Don't get wrapped up in the character of the people that you live among, but still live among them, right? There's this tension of trying to figure that out. And frankly, we've not, uh, Christians don't have a great history of figuring out this tension, right? There's a tension of figuring out how do we live among people? How do we not become just like them? But then how do we relate to them so that we're not like weird, <laughs> You know, like, how do we live among the people that we live among and not be weird, but then different? So what I want to do is I just want to present just three categories of the ways Christians have failed at this, and then we're going to land on looking at the fourth one. There's loads of ways, just kind of like any personality test. If you've ever done a personality test, you're like, what's your Myers-Briggs, your Enneagram, or your, um, I don't know, what are the other ones? Super, what? Disc, all the, yeah, what's your, you know, what's your superpowers, all this. You know, have you ever done a BuzzFeed article or whatever there? Yeah. If you've ever done it, like one of those BuzzFeed, what's your Harry Potter house and all that stuff, you know, all those things. Um, 
there's a lot of different ways to cut this up, but here's how I've kind of cut this up for this sermon. So there's kind of three categories in which negative responses of how to live in a foreign culture, your own Babylon. There's the fortification model. There's this um, us, uh, them versus us, right? Um, all those, all those non-Christian people are really bad, wicked, and sinful. So what we're going to do is we're going to have our own Christian church, our own Christian school, our own Christian brands, our own Christian music. We're going to do everything on Christian terms and our Christian calendar or on our Christian stuff with our Christian friends and buy from Christian businesses, and then we never have to talk to those dead, you know, bad, dirty, sinful people. Other one, it's similar, a little bit different. The domination model is us versus them. This is the model of we have all of the answers on how to do things exactly right, and we are going to use all of our power, persuasion, political connections to make sure you do things the way we think they should be done, the right way, don't you know? That's one model. Can I just give a little, can I just go a little bit of a rant here for a second? Just a small, small thing. So this, these two perspectives are hard-baked into the American evangelical world. Like, they're hard-baked into how we think about things. Because we're, uh, if you think about this, uh, we have like this whole ethos of like those pilgrims from England, they got on the Mayflower in the boats and they came across this, the water and they found, you know, America just sitting there waiting to be discovered. And then they had a Thanksgiving, <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner with the American Indians and everything was happy honky-dory. The history there is actually the pilgrims were um, a group of people that had been persecuted in England. And they thought, you know what? This persecution's really bad. I bet you if we left, you know, they're Protestants. If we left this Catholic country and we go to that Dutch country over there, those Dutchies, they all like Protestant faith. So they all move across. So they move over. They move into, into, into Holland and all those places. And they're like, this, re- this Protestant world is great. Everybody loves the Bible, blah, blah, blah. But gosh darn it, our kids are becoming like these Dutchies. We can't allow that to happen. Those duchies, wait, we don't want them influencing and affecting our children. We want to be our own Protestants. So we move back to England. You know what? Those Catholics aren't so bad. They move back to England. They yet again are persecuted by the Catholics for a long time. And then they're like, you know what? We're done doing this. It's better to face the possibility of dying in the ocean than to continue to be persecuted by these Catholics or to become like those, those Dutch people over there. So let's get on these boats that might sink or we might starve and go across the, go across the ocean. Who knows how long that's going to take? Maybe three months. And then, hopefully, we don't make the native people there angry enough that they kill us. And then hopefully we get there before we can, uh, the winter hits and we can make food, and hopefully we don't die. It is hard-baked in the American evangelical psychosis of religion to think us versus them or us over them. Us and them. It is baked into how we just think about things. Third category here that is, um, that just to mention, is accommodation. This is, uh, you might call this basically like um, Christian communities where they kind of wave the white flag uh, to the culture. It's us and them. There's really no difference. All the cultural values, same. We're just going to say we're, we don't want to have any more fights. We don't want to hide. We don't want to do any. There's, no, there's going to be no difference between us and the world around us. We are just basically um, the Sunday morning club of the, cultural, the culture around us. All right, so those are all the kind of the negative dynamics of how Christians have solved this problem of how do we live as faithful people 
in a foreign, in, a, in our own Babylon. What I want to do now is we're going to look at how do, how do we live out our presence in Babylon. So this is the point three if you're taking notes or the slides are up there or whatever. By the way, I didn't mention this at the beginning, the Q&A number there, if you have questions through the sermon, you can text me, that comes straight to my phone, we'll do a little bit of Q&A after the sermon, if that's your thing. Okay, point three, our presence in Babylon. Let me read verses four to seven. This is kind of the heart of what we want to look at this morning. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it is in the welfare that you will find your welfare. For it is in their welfare that you will find your welfare. God's people even in exile, are not on vacation. They're still a part of God's plan, even when they are being sent out and ejected by God for disobeying him. They're still, he is still with them. Right? You notice there that it says in verse 4 that um, I have sent you into exile. This is God's purpose and plan for them. They live in this tension of how do we be faithful to God in a place that doesn't look a lot like what God said it should look like. So here's four things that I think kind of come out of this, and there's just one, there's one perverse Verse 4, they are sent to them, right? God's people are sent to the Babylonians. They are sent to be there. Verse 5, they are to stay among them, right? They aren't to the Christian, you know, uh, hole up in their own Christian commune. They are to stay among them. Verse 6, they are to build with them. They are to do things and enterprise and life with their neighbors. And verse 7, they are to seek to bless them. You notice these po- this posture is very much us for them, rather than us them, us versus them, them versus us, us and them. What I want to land on here is that the posture of how we are to live as God's people, representing Jesus, is to be us for them. That's where we're going to want to land with all this. Why? So. At the first, we want to ask the question, why is this the posture that, that, that Jeremiah or God recommends? First of all, and primarily, it is what God's posture is all through the Bible. It is God's posture all through the Bible to say, you guys have really screwed this up. Not only that, but you've pushed me out of my own house. You guys have tried to reject me out of your lives. You guys have tried to write me out of the creation that I made to dwell with you in. And what does God do yet again over and over? Remember those SVU or uh, Law and Order uh, shows? Each season finale includes, I'm with you. Each season finale of the perpetual Law and Order of how we've screwed things up, God comes in at the final moment and says, I am still here. I am still for you. I, that's why when, it, when the Bible talks about using the words like called or set apart, that's God doing that. God is still sticking his hands into our lives, into creation to say, you are mine, you are chosen. And ultimately, that is expressed when God says, I am going to take on your very flesh. And he takes on in the incarnation of Jesus. It is the ultimate. That's what we celebrate. We have all those Christmas cards. Behold God with us. 
you know, all these Christmas cards. God, all these, all these moments of Christmas, the incarnation is God himself saying, I am so for you. I am so for your humanity. I am so for you being saved from your sin. I am so for your renewal in me that I'm going to get right inside the story, right? That's like J.R. Tolkien writing himself into the character of Lord of the Rings or like, um, like Joss Wheaton writing himself into the story of one of his movies. Like he gets inside the story and says, here I am. I'm now a part of the drama. He gets inside the story so much because he cares about this idea of us for them. Right? You realize that each of us in our own way have created our own Babylon, our own Tower of Babel, where we have said, I think I can write this story better than God can. I can write my life story. Right? One of my favorite principles from the AA program is that uh, your best thinking got you here, right? <laughs> why are you an addict? Why are you, why are you struggling with alcohol and addiction? Your best thinking got you here, right? The worst moments of our, of our sin coming back to bite us is <laughs> the same idea from, the, from our brothers and sisters in AA. Your best thinking got you here. And God is saying, I am so for you that I'm not just going to write you off. I'm not going to erase humanity from this world, but I'm going to dwell and be here among you. He's going to eat the same food that isn't so great, right? If Jesus was around, he still probably would have bought food from Taco Bell, right? You know, Jesus dwells among us so that, that remember it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that God's undeserved gracious, sacrificial, identifying, life-giving presence would be tangibly experienced and known. This is, I want to go back to Jeremiah 29. There in verse 7, I want to point out a word to you. But seek the welfare of the city. That word welfare is actually in the Hebrew, shalom. That may actually sound familiar as a word to you if you've been around any Bible stuff. Shalom is this main idea of peace, rest, fulfillment, joy, satisfaction. It's all that we yearn for in our humanity, being realized and experienced. And God is saying, I want you, King's Cross Church, to live in such a way that you desire the peace the well-being, the flourishing, the goodness of your city, of your town, wherever you live, that God has made you to be the means, not just that God's going to just kind of do it someday, but right now, God wants you to be the means of realizing and being a part of his desire for people to live in peace and wholeness and well-being. We are to be this us, versus us for them community. We are to be a community of shalom where we, even in this community here, Sunday morning, small groups through the week, you know, we're just a bunch of uh, knuckleheads who don't really know what we're doing, but we are trying to be a people that lives in this us-for-them reality. If you're okay with it, I want to I read from a letter um, from uh, the second century. Uh, this is uh, about 100 years after the apostles. I think it captures some of the idea of what we're talking about here. It's called the letter of um, 
Diagnetus. I know that that's selling like hotcakes at uh, the local bookstore, but it's uh, a letter that comes out of a, a section of churches that were pastored by the Apostle John. And so I, I put a date on there because it's kind of like nobody knows, and it, who even knows who Diognetus is or who he was. He was probably a pastor like me that nobody really realized was like around, and then he wrote this letter and died, and nobody knew who it was. <laughs> so here is a letter that I think captures some of what, he is, what we're talking about here. And he's using this image, just to, before we get there, he's using this image of, of our soul and our body to describe the Christian community among the city. Your soul and your body amongst the community where you live. The world hates Christians, not that they have done it wrong, but because they oppose its pleasures. The soul loves the body and its members in spite of the hatred. So Christians love those who hate them. The soul is locked up in the body, yet it holds the body together. So Christians are held in the world as in a prison, yet it is they who hold the world together. Are you picking up what he's saying there? Like, as your soul can't, like, leave your body, I mean, unless you die, but your, your soul is a part of your body and loves your body even when, you know, it's sick and unhealthy and not doing well. But it is actually, he is saying, the soul that holds the body together. In a similar way for Christians, we think, oh, my gosh, the city is like, uh, the culture is so set against us, blah, blah, blah. What he is saying, and I think what God is saying through Jeremiah 29, is that you actually are the soul that holds your city, your town, your culture together because you are where God has chosen to dwell. Yes, God dwells in our city in a very general sense, but God through King's Cross and you know, Hope Tabernacle, other churches in our city, he is dwelling here in a specific and unique way. In a certain sense, Manchester exists so that you Christians have neighbors to love and serve, to realize what it means to be a people like Jesus who love and serve other people. That's the reason why Manchester and Derry and all these other towns around us exist. They exist so that you are the soul of your own city your own town, to be God's way of loving the people around you. That raises the bar on why we're here. <laughs> that raises the bar to not just being kind of like, well, I guess we just pay taxes here and I own property or I rent and yeah, that's where I work and yeah, just whatever. No, if you're following what we've been saying, right, God sent you here, God wants you here, and actually you are here to be God's soul, so to speak, in your city, Manchester, Derry, Goffstown, whatever it is, your town, you are the soul that holds this place together. What does that mean for us? So I want to ask a few questions and just kind of paint a picture. And you guys are welcome to disagree with this. That's fine. But I think what, this, what it means to be the soul of our city is knowing, loving, and living among the people where God has placed you and joining God's work of compassionate grace to bless those around us. So living here, we have to kind of begin to describe what is our Babylon? What is, what is the Babylon of Manchester or the Babylon of Goffstown or the Babylon of the North End or whatever? What is it? Well, I mean, we can speak in general terms, right? So we've got the parks. We've got, we, we have a world around us that is increasingly politically divided. I mean, I will say I've lived a lot of places, and Manchester takes politics to a next level. Like, next level politics for real. Like, people, I just, I would never even touch that with a 10-foot pole, right? 
We have in the news regular disasters that are going on that we have to think about and process. We obviously have the, the pandemic that's going on and how people respond to that. We have a housing crisis. We have addiction problems in our city. We have all these things going on, and everybody around you is processing the same data. But God has chosen to live in you as a way of living in those problems and of all those issues. So the very stresses and the things that you process through are the same pressures and dynamics that your neighbors process through, but the difference is you got Jesus' ear. You can talk to Jesus about them. You can say, Jesus, I don't have an answer for this, but God, I need your help. I need your help to live amidst these people, to seek the shalom, the peace of our city, the well-being of our neighbors, even those neighbors that live and, and breathe and do things in ways that you disagree with that aren't according to God's ways. I mean, certainly, if you know anything about the history of Babylon, Babylon did not have a happy ending um, because they were not living according to God's ways, and yet God says, seek its welfare. So, even if you have neighbors that are doing crazy things that you don't agree with or are dangerous, hurtful, and harmful, what does it mean to be somebody that works through the same stresses and pressures of their lives, yet with the phone line of Jesus, right? Jesus, I need your help. I need you to live among us. So, for example, I think each of us in our own ways are processing the stress of the pandemic in different ways, right? But we have been at this whole thing for 18 months. We've been at it in a way that is continuing to be stressful and straining and hard, and so have your neighbors. So what does it look like to think about your neighbors in a way that says, I had these same stresses, but how do we pursue a renewing of our humanity together? What does it mean to be people who are happy and healthy together in creative ways amidst the stress of the pandemic? Texting your neighbor, you know, just texting them, hey, what's going on? Can I get you anything from the store? Can I talk to you over the fence? You know, like they were, uh, what was that show with Woody Allen where the, the neighbor like talked over the fence? Do you know what I'm talking about? Home improvement, right? You guys can do your own home improvement neighborhood, you know? Like you can just continue to like talk to your neighbor over the fence or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> you know, like those sort of things. What does it look like to have, if you're married, in your marriage, the tension of both work and kids and finances and uh, the pandemic to work through those stresses and then to think about and pray for your neighbors who have the same dynamics yet without Jesus? What does it look like to, I mean, I'm on the board here for the Hope Center, and we care about the addiction dynamics. We're thankfully seeing loads of people coming back to the programs and the the, the meetings here. How can we as a community help and support these meetings to continue to happen, right? Like, how can we volunteer here to make sure that our neighbors, like these are our literal, at least for me, my, my literal neighbors, how can we make sure that they have a healthy and safe place to come and have meetings? They don't, I want them to come to know Jesus. <laughs> you understand me? I want them to know Jesus and to experience the forgiveness of sin and the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. I also want them to actually live lives where they're not hurting themselves and being in danger to themselves. So then how do we continue to promote their own health and well-being without having to like put like a fish, a fish hook in it of like, well, I'll help the meeting as long as you come to church on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're just helping them so that we are pursuing 
as verse 4 says, their well-being, right? Verse 7, we are pursuing their well-being so that they experience it as being a promotion of their own well-being. So, I'm going to just present a few, uh, a few next steps for this, and then we're going to finish out by just a little quick note on the final chapter of Babylon. For your own spiritual renewal, how does your understanding of your life change knowing that God has placed you where you are and is with you there? How does that change how you understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does that mean for you? A, a prayer category from here. I think... It's worthwhile um, looking up. I mean, if you want to start extremely local, pray, uh, pray for Keith Howard and the directors of the Hope Center that they would have the wisdom to know how to best direct the addiction efforts of this community. If you want to be broader, go to the Manchester website, manchesternh.gov, and look up their, our civic officials. Pray for Joyce Craig and our aldermen, and we've got an election in a month, and whoever your political candidate of choice is, I don't care but pray for them to have the wisdom to be able to lead our city through, right? We've got the homeless dynamics. We've got the addiction dynamic. We've got the jobs uh, dynamics going on. We have a number of renovations. I, I really want them to get the, the streets done before the winter comes around. <laughs> you know, there's loads of things that we can, be, we can just simply think about and pray for our civic officials. The fourth one, or the third category, and then we'll, we'll move on. For folks in your community, your church or your neighborhood, what is the, um, as a result, uh, sorry, I, I'm reading my notes directly, and that's never a good thing. How can you communicate with your neighbors and your immediate, where you immediately are with them that you're thinking about them and you want to make sure that they are doing okay? <laughs> right? How can we just, like, Mr. Rogers, just make sure that, like, your neighbors are just, like, okay during the midst of the pandemic, as we're going into the fall season, as we're going into the winter season, this is very pertinent to me because this is now the second winter season that we're going into after the pandemic dynamics. And I'm very concerned about the mental health of our neighbors. How can we pursue them to make sure that they are doing okay and are meaningfully cared about? Okay. Last thing I'll say about this. I, I promise. I think this is something that you guys are doing a great job at. I don't bring these categories up as like hammer you for doing a bad job. I really feel like we are doing a good job of being faithful to pursue the well-being of our city and our neighborhood and your neighbors. This is a reminder and maybe an encouragement to move further into that. Last thing we're going to look at, the fall of Babylon. This is not going to be surprising to anybody. The fall of Babylon. Here I want to read from the book of Revelation to see what's the final story of the culture and city around us. Revelation 1 through 2, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Verses 11 and 13. And the monarchs of the earth, or I'm sorry, the merchants of the earth, wept and mourned for her, that is the fall of Babylon the Great, since no one buys her cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of uh, articles of ivory, which is uh, now illegal, um, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, 
fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The glory of Babylon is the use of all of God's gifts, even to the point of humanity itself, for its own glory and ends, and God will one day strike it down. We live in the midst of that tension. And there will be another city that God brings down to earth and dwells with us. And here is that final picture. Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We live in that in-between spot between what happened in Genesis 11 and what will happen in Revelation 21. We live in our own Babylon, whatever that is. I don't have all the answers for you, and I would, God help me, never tell you all the details of how to live out your life so that you pursue the well-being of all those around you. But God is giving us a direction here. Are we pursuing? Are we loving? Are we seeking? Are we building with those people around us where we have been placed by God to be the soul of our city, of our town, to pursue their well-being? Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus does through us. So I pray that... As we've worked through this, that you would, and this week ahead, live for Jesus through faithful presence in your Babylonian exile. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this passage and considered the story, I pray that you would help us to be faithfully present to pursue the peace and the shalom. Would you help us to be us for them, people in our city? because that's who you are for us in Jesus. So in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.